Few people have had a cooler career than John Langford. Let's listen to him talk about art and music on The Dale Wiley Show. Because there was something in the water in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, don't forget me. I'm Brenda Lee, and we're all going to have fun tonight on Oh God Jubilee! the Missouri Music Podcast, hosted by music fan and the founder of Slewfoot Records, Mr. Dale Wiley. Well, this is Dale. How are you? Hey, um, I don't know how to make that work. I thought it was going to kind of like leap into action, then nothing happened. <laughs> well, you know, I I launched into action. So we're all good now, and we're taping. So... Am I talking today to the very wonderful and very famous John Langford? Is, uh, is the audio quality okay? The audio quality is fine. It's not as good as Ringer, but it's totally fine. This okay. will work perfectly. Oh, good. All right. Thank you. Sorry about that. Yes. Oh, no, no. No, no. Totally fine, and I'm so happy to be able to connect with you. And so let's start just by saying, what kind of music do you play? Um. What kind of music do I play? I started yeah. off. I started off as a uh, a drummer in a punk rock band in England in the nineteen seventies, and <laughs> I, know. I don't know. We play also. We we sort of make our own music, so we mostly yeah. mostly original. But there's lots of influences in there, and lots of things uh-huh. we've taken on board along the way. Uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to describe what sort of music. Well, that's Lou, true. Lou, one of our. Members of the Mekons always describes it as, it says, people ask us what sort of music we play, he says comedy. So, <laughs> Okay, but I want to go back actually before the Mekons and talk about how you got interested in music at first. Uh, I can remember a, very precisely a moment in ni- the winter of 1971 when I was listening okay. to the, the radio and I heard T-Rex and it was a song called... Okay. <laughs> Jeepster by T Rex came on oh, yes. came on the radio and I was listening to it and something happened to my body that made me feel very excited. <laughs> and I don't know what it was. It was just suddenly it was like, Wow, this is this is really great and I don't know, it was something that was current and was happening and I knew there was all this music but I was too kinda of, too young for the Beatles and the Stones really. But then sure. suddenly this music was this thing that was my music and it was kind of I guess my parents didn't approve of it, which helped. <laughs> yes. But then I heard Bowie and I heard Roxy Music, and the whole glam rock thing was really was really cool because it was sort of vaguely transgressive in that most of the guys in the bands were dressed as women, <laughs> wearing <laughs> loads of mi- lipstick and makeup. But it was something that kind of the football hooligan kind of element that at my high school kind of all kind of liked as well so it was uh-huh. it had broad appeal and it was yes, it, it was it had a stance and uh, yeah i think the parents didn't understand it so we were all like 
we were all like 13, 14, and this music was happening. And yeah, we well, all got suddenly got into it, and then from, there's no real looking back. Before that, it had been, you know, sports. Sure. <laughs> and then I, I renounced sports after that, pretty much. <laughs> well, and, you know, clearly then the middle 70s were even more transgressive and more, but at the same time, maybe made you feel like you could form the band. Uh, well, I would say the mid-70s, the kind of sheen of uh, glam rock wore off, and then it got very boring for a few years. Uh-huh. And then th- those were the prog rock years when everybody was singing about <laughs> elves and wizards, and I didn't really <laughs> like that. And it was all down to how many notes you could play and how fast you could play and how complicated right. your arrangements were to your songs. And it wasn't really till about 76, 77 that Okay. punk thing happened and that was definitely a reaction to that and it was a liberating moment for for a lot of us because we didn't really consider ourselves musicians but suddenly you were given like a license to to be in a band you could form bands bands like the yes. sex Pistols and the clash existed and you could see right. that they were you know i wouldn't say they were bad musicians or anything like that but what they were doing was within your grasp yeah, you know, it, it wasn't. What, it was about the attitude and the politics and the energy, rather than being about this kind of meandering kind of whizzy that had taken <laughs> over everything. Well, and you know, you formed Mekons, and so I guess what was that? What was that ethos? What what brought you to form the Mekons? And as a drummer as well. Just peer pressure, really. Everybody was forming bands. <laughs> and we, our best mates were a band called The Gang of Four, and they had a rehearsal oh, yeah. room. And we oh, could yeah. use, when they took a break to go and have some pints in the pub, we could go in there, pick up their instruments, and and write some silly songs. You know, we had no ambition whatsoever. It was just kind of fun. <laughs> we were art students, so, you know, we, we didn't have ambitions to make a career out of it. We just took it as a, you know, it was like a weird ride, but we ended up putting out a single before the Gang of Four, I guess, because in those times the fact that we were a band where no one could really play their instruments was yeah. something that made total sense and was interesting to people. So, uh, right, uh, you know, we all, as the years went by, we all kind of vaguely learned how to play it, but it was just that, you know, it was the reaction against the sort of virtuosity that I mentioned before. So, yeah, and then. Then we were on a ride, you know, it kind of had a life of its own. We weren't really, we kind of had the idea to form a band and then, then other forces took over, you know, and suddenly we were on the radio and achieved a sort of notoriety that people, you know, it was kind of fun. And then we ended up on a major label, which was I know, insanity, really, if you think about <laughs> it. But How long after you formed did that happen? Uh, probably by, we had a single come out at the beginning of 78, first single, okay. which did quite well. And then we had some Peel sessions. It was very, you know, brutally primitive. Then we made another single in 78, which came out at the beginning of 79, which definitely reflected the fact that we'd thought about it a lot more. And it was definitely more musical. In fact, it was the song Where Were You? And it's actually a very, it's a really kind of powerful, perfect, Little, little single. It's like a T Rex yeah. song, in fact. Definitely. It sounds like uh, it, it's just, you know, it's it's functional music. It's not flashy, but it does the job. And yeah. it sold a lot of records, but it, independently. So clearly, we were something causing a bit of a stir. Had really great reviews in the, you know, 
huge music press that existed on a weekly basis in Britain at the time, which was you know, oh, yeah. all God Almighty, you know, everybody, everybody read it and everybody believed everything they read. And so suddenly <laughs> we're, we're on a major label and it was, it was very odd. So that was summer of 79. We're from a back street, you know, warehouse rehearsal room in Leeds. We're suddenly at Richard Branson's manor. I know. In Oxfordshire, know. recording an album. My drum's set up in the snooker room, you know. So. <laughs> well, and, It didn't you know, make I, any sense at all. <laughs> well, at the same time, I just go back to, I mean, what were the Peel sessions like? What was it like to be on there with John Peel? Oh, it, the first time John Peel played the single, I have to say that was, I can remember that. I can, it's just like a burns into my memory. I was uh, sure. alone. I was alone in my grotty little, you know, one bedroom I lived in, in student housing in Leeds. And uh-huh. I put the John Peel show on, as I always did. And I used to put a cassette machine up against the up against the uh, radio and oh, record yeah. the show so I, could go, so I could go to the pub and I could come home and listen to the show later. Because uh-huh. he had two hours from 10 o'clock till, till midnight. So I would tape uh-huh. the first hour. And I'm getting to the pub in time for a few pints and then go back. And then uh, this night, he suddenly says, I'm going to be playing a record from the new record from the Mekons tonight. Like, what? <laughs> what? And I didn't know what to do. And I was, so I stuck a you know, cassette machine on. Then I ran up and down the street trying to find <laughs> friends and went in the pub and there was no one in the pub. And I ran back up the house and I grabbed a, a neighbor, actually, my friend Dinah, and made her come back to my house. Because it was like I wanted someone to witness it. <laughs> It was almost oh, like yeah. it was a. It was wasn't real. Yeah. And we well, went from like. like and we went from being kind of shiftless, snotty little art students who no one <laughs> liked to being suddenly heroes campus. You know. Yes. Definitely. The next day, everyone was like, "Yeah, I heard you on John Peel." It was the only show that played kind of new music or interesting oh, music. Oh yeah. Well, it's still just. Huge, you know. I mean, that's just yeah. still a big deal, even this many years later. Yeah, and the archive that he created by putting bands, you know, bands with little experience in the recording studio into the Made Avail BBC complex with, sure, you know, top top black in- engineers. That stuff sounds fantastic. A lot of my favourite things that come of bands at that time are some of those, oh, yeah. like the early Gang of Four John Peel sessions, sound better than the albums to me. Um, yeah. We even put this, you know, in the mid '80s, when Mekons did a Peel session, and we just said, "Can we put this out?" And they were like, "Yeah." And we, we just put that <laughs> out as the record because there was no point going to a studio and re-recording right. the songs because it was just a a great moment. But we met Peel a few times. He was lovely. He used to take us out. He had a contractual obligation with the BBC where he had to do live gigs as part of his role as a DJ. So we would go up to like Stratford on Avon Polytechnic and we would play to a bunch of engineering students who hated us. <laughs> and it'd be us and a band called the Prefects from Birmingham who then became the Nightingales. Still going as well, incidentally. And really? uh, Yeah, great. They're good, great mates of ours. And then he would like say, well, here's, I got paid 1,500 quid for that, so I don't need any money. So here's 750 quid each for you. Two oh, bands. wow. And at the time, that was like a fortune. You know? Oh, yeah. That's so he was... He definitely, yeah. So he he was lovely to us. He really, and he, you know, it's just just an incredible guy, to be honest. And he, you know, then he had all that history as well. I used to send him postcards when I was 
off on tour, like in Amsterdam or something like that, I'd send him a little postcard. And he uh-huh. said, and I saw him one time, and he said, like, I'll keep all your postcards. You do little <laughs> really? drawings yeah. on them. I'll keep them with my David Bowie postcards that he used to send me. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> How cool wow. is that? I know. He used to, you know, the bands, he, he, you know, when David Bowie was trying to break into the business, he was I like, know. you know, sending John Peel postcards. Yeah. yeah Funny, that's, really. That's incredible lineage, you know. So, anyway, how did you end up coming to America and getting so interested in this new form of country music? Well, it, for me, I didn't know I liked country music. Okay. Uh, but having said that, that's ridiculous. Well, I thought about it because, you know, one of my favorite things as a kid was Tom Jones being from Wales. Yeah. Tom Jones was God, you know, so we had uh, songs like The Green Green Grass at Home, oh, which yeah. is a complete, you know, is a completely standard country country, country yeah. prison song, you know, where the guy yes. gets executed at the end, total schmoz. Right. But for us in Wales, that was like the Welsh National Anthem when I was a kid. Tom, <laughs> does Tom sung it. I never connected to that one country music and I love Johnny Cash because of all his prison songs but I thought he was I thought he was rock and roll like Elvis Presley I didn't think he was country music okay. but you know so it's all these weird definitions and I thought country music was for old right wing people until <laughs> right. a DJ from Chicago turned up in about 83 and he, he made all these tapes and he gave them to us and he actually said the Mekons are like country music because your song structures are really simple you only have two or three chords and all your songs are about drinking in bars and failed sexual relationships. <laughs> like, well, that's absolutely true, but we can't be country. But other people have said you like a folk band as well, you know. So there's always, right. we never really knew what we were doing ourselves, but it always took other people to explain it to us. But right. I got really infatuated with um, stuff like uh, Merle Haggard, George Jones, Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers. Patsy Cline, Loretta Lynn, all this stuff that was, I don't know, it felt like there was this whole thing about punk was trying to break down the barrier between the audience and the and the performer, you know? Sure. We were right. sort of, we hated that stadium rock thing where you had to pay a fortune to get in to see a gig and a lot of guys were like looking at their shoes with long hair and playing for hours, boring music. Yes. And then suddenly you had this thing, well, hang on, someone like Merle Haggard, he's you know, I thought if he was like a right wing, I wouldn't interested in him at all. And suddenly uh-huh. he's like, this guy's writing songs that really are about people's lives, that really oh, yeah. talk so, about their everyday life in such a direct way that they, it's almost like there is no barrier between him and his audience. He is his, exactly. he is his, he is his, he is his audience. And that's kind of what we, on some levels, were aspiring to with punk rock. So suddenly it said, well, God, punk rock's about, in, in count, you know, in, in Facing up to the to the real world in in song and music and attitude and and there's uh-huh. there's these guys are doing it kind of almost effortlessly. So it was and then someone like Cash, who I was lucky enough to meet a few times. Yeah, he, so we'll talk about he, that. Definitely. Yeah, but he was you know the, the way he treated country music was like fantastic. You know, he he didn't see it as a kind of exclusive thing. He thought it was a, he saw it as a in, totally inclusive thing where it could yes. come. You know that. Trails of was it? What's the album? Not the Trail of Tears. Was it called? Well, there's. I mean, so the, the, he does a Native American album. Yes, that's bitter, bitter tears. Bitter tears. Yeah. Yes. That. I Very, mean, when I when I heard that, I was like, 
bloody hell, you know, this is oh, yeah. this is really radical, and it's, he's doing this in the heart of the mainstream. He's not right. He's not like putting this out on an indie label and selling hundred right. copies. Oh he's yeah. Fight, he's fighting a battle which could destroy his whole career, but he's just not afraid to do that. And yes. I don't know. Exactly. Things like that really emboldened bolden me. But also, uh, I will say when I came to Chicago. Uh-huh. In the late eighties, we suddenly finally got. Happened, How well, did we had Chicago. And we had some. I had a tour with a band called the Three Johns that were quite okay, successful sure in England. England. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and then then the Mekons, you know, started had Fear and Whiskey come out, and then we got we got offered some dates as well, so we came over. But you know, we came over thinking about. I was obsessed with, like I said, sort of classic honky tonk country music. Oh, yeah. I thought it would be everywhere, you know, and then it was got <laughs> got here, and it was like it, somebody built a you know a shopping mall on top of it, and all the country on the radio was that new country stuff, which definitely. You know, I liked Dwight Yoakam, and I liked Randy Travis, and I liked John Anderson and people like that, but it seemed like sure. they were the it was they were the tail end of something. Yeah. And what was what was coming up was this suburban kind of Republican. Rock pop that wasn't sure. to do anything to do with what I liked about country music. So right. exactly. I don't know. Yeah, we ended up in Chicago, and somebody said one night, "Do you want to go?" You know, I went to Nashville. I went all over the South looking for looking for this culture. You know, couldn't really find it. Go to Chicago and go go to a Western wear Mexican Western wear shop on Chicago Avenue. Okay. Spend all our money on cowboy shirts, Stetsons, bolo ties, uh-huh. you know, collar studs, and belts. And then end up in a honky tonk at a Greyhound bus station after a gig and get uh-huh. invited on stage by a band called the Sundowners. Who okay. This band who did it did this sort of five night a week shift in Chicago for thirty five years, and they were a proper country and western band because they did sure. three part uh-huh. harmony Sons of the Pioneers songs. They did Merle oh, Haggard yeah. songs, and immediately they see us in our you know. Buffoonish English rock star <laughs> cowboy outfits. They're like, "Oh, we've got a band here. You guys got to get up on stage." And I was like, "Nah, no, no, you don't want that." <laughs> and they were like, "Come on!" And people in the crowd, were, "Yeah, go on, get on up and play." So we go up and murder a Hank Williams song, you know. And, but I thought next time I come back, you know, we went away with tails between my legs. People weren't people weren't hostile. But I just sure. thought it was awful, so I thought I'm going to go on. <laughs> I'm going to learn a few songs. I'll learn a few Johnny Cash songs and Merle Hag songs. So if I ever get asked up again, right. I can get up on stage and actually do it. And, uh, right. Yeah, but yeah, that's how I, I ended up meeting a girl in Chicago, my wife, Helen. And uh, uh-huh. she actually, I met her there, but she, we didn't get together until she had been living in Europe. She came to, lived in London for a while, and she lived in Paris uh, for a bit. We got together when she was living in France, and then she was moving back. So I've been touring so much, I didn't feel like I lived anywhere. Sure. By about 1991, I had a house in Leeds, which I rarely went to. Um, so it was just a kind of easy move. It wasn't like one of them. I'm moving to America. It was kind of like <laughs> I had, I had, you know, I had all these things there already in various people's houses. So. I had a guitar and a guitar amp there, and I was like, no, I'll just come and live in America, maybe, yeah. <laughs> well, best I move, guess... Best move I could have made. Chicago's really? been a very uh, very good, supportive place for me to, to be. Well, definitely with the label and everything else, I mean, Bloodshot's been super cool to you. 
Like, yeah, that was a weird thing because I got there and I'd already kind of, we did that thing in the mid 80s, you know, with me kind of obsession with fear and whiskey and, you know, that, that that was when we were kind of really absorbed in the country thing. Then we'd been on a major label with A&M and we made a sure. couple of albums that were real kind of like noisy rock and roll albums uh-huh. and didn't really know what we were doing. We were in legal problems and I was stuck in Chicago. And then these guys come up to me in a bar and said, we form in a country label. Do you want to write a song beyond our album? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, I kind of used to do something vaguely like that. Oh, I'll have a think about it. So I just I kind of thought about it and wrote a song for them. But around that same time I met, I produced an album for Wax Tracks with a band called Wreck. And the lead okay. singer in Rex has got Dean Schlebowski from Milwaukee. And we both, we both got drunk one day and... Uh, Afternoon drinking, you know, and uh, he, we expressed our great love for George Jones and Ernest Tubb. Oh, yeah. And decided, all right, we should form a band where we only do George Jones and Ernest Tubb songs and we only play in bars for beer. And that's how the Waco, <laughs> Bro- that's how the Waco Brothers started. You know, so. Again, I think the best bands have always formed with little self awareness or ambition, you know. Yeah. Because you were in a lot of bands. Yeah, it seems like it. So like, <laughs> music's a very collaborative thing. It's really great. To, yeah. Well, and so is art, but you've got to tell me how you developed your really amazing art style. Uh, that was a dr- direct um, reaction to coming to the States. And as I said, we came to, went to Nashville and Memphis and the South in about 87 or 88. Around yeah. the time we did the Johnny Cash covers record, right. which you know led us to be able to meet Johnny Cash a few yes, times, which I was know. very very cool. But so cool. I had to do the cover. Mark Riley said, "Who's going to do the cover for the record? You should just do a painting." I uh-huh. thought, "Do a painting of Johnny Cash," and I started. You know, that was the very first time I'd have tried to do that, and I suddenly really? started thinking about country and western stars, and the fact that they were kind of like so massive and so huge but then it just disappeared and uh yeah. you know there was they were almost gone without trace and i started thinking it was like religious martyrs and the life hank williams had lived you know on the right. road and how hard oh, it was yeah. for him you know, physically and what people oh, yeah. what the grand old opry put their artists through yes definitely. um you know and the fact that they were all kind of like hooked on speed because you, if they if they hadn't been they wouldn't be able to get through the schedule of gigging yes they wouldn't be able right. to drive to get home and play the grand old opry on saturday night so it kind of like you know it was, uh, i don't know I, just, I wanted to recognize those people and there's something vaguely autobiographical about it as well because i think you know i wanted to do make art about musicians and the sort of politics surrounding a musician's life so well definitely and that's also what led you into the anti-death penalty camp yeah yeah well i well i, I was in that camp anyway because we didn't have the penalty <laughs> where i grew up yeah so when i moved i remember moving to chicago and sitting at home one night it was the night they were, they executed john wayne gacy and uh-huh. you know be completely aware of the fact that guy's a hideous monster a serial killer right. And sure. if anyone if anyone deserved it, he did. I was still shocked and horrified. Right. At the way it was actually presented on the news, because there were people, there were people out protesting uh, the execution. Yes. There was a silent vigil of anti-death penalty campaigners. 
and the way the local news in Chicago portrayed them is they portrayed them as kind of raving lunatics. Like, <laughs> they didn't even they didn't interview them in Britain. They would have had one of them on doing a tour, you know, saying, "Oh well, right, they, sure." They didn't. They just they filmed them in slow motion and didn't show their faces and just showed their kind of placards. Sure. And it was just it just dismissed them entirely. I said, "My God, I've moved to this country and now I'm from being like a kid growing up in." socialist, vaguely socialist Wales, <laughs> yeah. I'm now completely off the political map. I'm a total fringe lunatic. <laughs> and through, actually through Tony Fitzpatrick, who's a big mate of mine, an artist in Chicago, who did, he got me into actually exhibiting my art and showing my art, did a lot of artwork for our covers. He, he was made with Steve Earle, and it was a big issue that Steve Earle was involved oh, yeah. in. So, yeah. so we did a gig with Steve, to benefit the uh, moratorium campaign against the death penalty in Illinois. That was the first stage, was they had a moratorium on the death penalty then. Uh, he just said to me after the gig, you should make an album. Make an album like you did, you know, like I did with the Johnny Cash album. Make right. an album to benefit this. And, I, and it seemed like, a, what would that be? And then it was kind of interesting to think about the idea of doing death songs. songs yeah. about There's so many of those songs that, Exist in the in the kind of country music genre. There's yes. so many of those songs, sort of like Green Green Grass at Home, you know. Yes, it's a death penalty song, but it was a major hit. And right. It suddenly, it seemed like now country music now seems has got rid of got rid of all these great songs about drinking, cheating, and killing, and everything's about yes. everything's about chugging beer and being a Republican in your truck. <laughs> you know. So I thought, well, I thought this is country music should be shouldn't be like right wing it should be kind of it should be like punk rock it should be dealing with real world things so I thought, let's go and let's do death songs against the death penalty and so uh, right. and it was amazing actually i had to do three volumes so i did the first volume and then so many people were pissed off because i hadn't asked them to be on it <laughs> and people were like oh okay and we even had people say i'm not i'm not really i'm not really against the death penalty but i'd like to be on your album and i'd talk to them and go like well this is uh yeah this is what it's all about. And then they'd be, you know, we actually converted a few people. And then, you know, a few years ago, and they put, they, all I was trying to do was put money. I wanted to make them something that was strong artistically. So I just wanted to put some money into the hands of the, you know, the people who work behind the scenes and roll their sleeves up and actually sure. get the legislation changed. And they did a fantastic job. That campaign was brilliant. And we, you know, we got abolition in the end in, uh, you know, we paid, we probably paid for some phone bills and some photocopying for them, but Bloodshot again were right behind that. They, they did, you know, and we made we made three really great albums, I think. But it well, felt a that's... bit indulgent, so we put the second and third volume together as a double album because it couldn't <laughs> keep putting albums out, you know. So what are you doing now? What's next? Yeah, well, tomorrow we release a new Mekons album, which is well, entirely. Go. Entirely recorded in uh, isolation. Right. We were, we were meant to go to Spain in April, and we had a couple of we had an album out last year, and we did a couple of really, really quite big tours in one in Europe and then one in America, and they were hugely successful by our standards. So we ended up we had we actually had a load of money. <laughs> we were like, what should we do with this money? I said, so we should go and make another album. And where will we go? And a friend of ours had just moved to Valencia in Spain. And, okay. And we were like, we wanted to go and visit him. 
I thought, why don't we all go to Valencia and make an album there? But of course, it didn't happen. We bought all the tickets and booked the studio and et cetera, et cetera. And then the lockdown came in, so we didn't go. And then we were considering what we could do. And I suggested we try and make at least one, just one song where we all played on it remotely to see if we could make an album like that using any sort of technology that you could and that developed into a, I don't know, as things do with the Mekons, it became a kind of puzzle that I sorted out. And sure. It, it had to be, again, in, for us, it was like inventing the wheel. We didn't, or different people had different bits of equipment they could use. Some people just recorded things on their cell phone and sent them in. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, we have Dave Trumpio as our bass player who's got a proper recording studio in L.A., so... It could all end up lumped on a table there, and you had to sort it all out. But, but you know, the, the limitations of the process and the uh, complications of doing it became like what we were thinking about when we did it, and it, and it was it was great. It was it was it was kind of like those times when we were making records when we didn't think we even had an audience. Right. So we weren't even thinking about what we were making so much as how to make something, you know. Yeah. And then a, a lot of kind of crazy accidents occurred and a lot of uh, painfully long WhatsApp conversations and email exchanges. <laughs> and, and then, like, lots of theories about, you know, like the Exquisite Corpse. I don't know if you know that's a Marcel Duchamp, right. Yves Tongue game they made up, the Surrealists, where somebody sure. does something, then you, and then somebody does something, but they don't see that. And then, in the end, the whole thing just emerges. We were like, ah, this is what we—that's what we're doing. So then we got more and more kind of radical and said, well, this song's in A minor, it's 120 beats per minute, but just send something, and then no one listens to what anyone else has done. Wow, <laughs> and that it's like fun. Uh, it's fun. It's a real. It was a real experiment and kind of scarily coherent at the end of it. Yeah, you know it's weird, and then some words were done like that as well, you know. But I don't know. I stand by it as a as a, a really great great album. I really you know really got into it as we were doing it. And so, what's it called? What's his name? It's called Exquisite. Oh, okay. And it comes oh. out tomorrow, only digital, only on Bandcamp. Okay, well, that's a wonderful way. We've cut, very... we've cut out everyone. Everybody's been cut out. The record <laughs> companies, the recording studios. Yes. Yep. Everyone's been cut out. <laughs> and so let me ask you one more thing. What is the next art project? What's the next What's the next subject? Well, about? for me, it's been, uh, you know, I've been very lucky during the lockdown because I, while I can't play live, I can still go. To, I've got a painting studio. I can go oh, to, yeah. and I can make. I can make work. And people, people have been very generous. It hasn't really. I do all my stuff through Yard Dog uh, in Austin, yeah. and they have oh, a yeah. strong, very strong online presence. Uh-huh. And we were expecting it to completely dry up, and it hasn't. People have been ordering things. Maybe people are spending more time in their houses and thinking, oh, yes. I need a picture up there. So exactly. I've been very lucky, you know, to be able to make commissions for people and to have the time to pursue um, some other things that I've been interested in. You know, the music thing is very collaborative and exciting and you can get to work in blocks with, you know, I've worked with different people on different projects. The art thing, 
harder to make it collaborative and I actually spend then a lot of time on my own. So I don't know, the the, the things the ideas are different and the ideas move at a different sort of pace. So Which one do you so like I've got that? a backlog. Uh, I think I like music better. <laughs> <laughs> really? Only because I can't. Only because I can't do it. You know, the grass is always greener. <laughs> but sometimes when I'm away on tour, you know, sometimes when I'm away on tour, I would like kill to be back in my painting studio on my own. Yes. <laughs> but yes. there's ideas that with the painting. I think when I do go on tour, a lot of times it builds up a lot of things in the subconscious or whatever ideas, and they they kind of have a chance to percolate, and you just think about them a little. But not urgently. And then when I, now I'm in the studio and I've got, I've just got this backlog of things I, I want to do and get get through. You know, there's a whole series of paintings of I started last year, but I'm pursuing of kind of like mythological creature musicians. So oh, wow, that sounds yeah, nice. like there's you know, and there's a few out there already. But uh, and songs, you know, there's new songs that I've been working on over the last year, and then some of those songs, the lyrics to those songs, the songs aren't out there, but the paintings, you know, I'm doing the paintings now, so it's kind of like the paintings will come out before the music, and it's it's, it's strange, but it's, it's all cross-pollinating, and it all comes from the same bit of my brain, I think, in the end, so. That's that's awesome, and thank you for spending some time with me. I really hey, enjoyed yeah, it. Hey, yeah, sorry we couldn't get the ringer thing to work. Oh, no, it's totally fine. Uh, I was totally just poking. Fine. I was just poking my phone wildly. You know? <laughs> well, I hate, I love to picture that, but I really love the conversation we had. Thank you so much. Oh, great to talk to you. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Subscribe to the mailing list by texting DW Show to 22828, DaleWileyShow.com.